Deborah Francis White. Hello. Hello. There are loads of things about your pre-stand-up life and other stuff that you're up to at the moment that I want to ask you about that are really interesting. But first of all, let's talk about this show that you're doing, which is called... Deborah Francis White's How to Get Almost Anyone to Want to Sleep with You. Now, when I first saw the title of the show, I'd assumed it was a stand-up show and I'd assumed it was just one of those wacky titles. Oh, yeah, there were going to be three jokes about sort of sex or something and then 27 jokes about goldfish and lost socks. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's not, it's genuinely... (laughs) It is genuinely self-help comedy. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. A few people have said to me, oh, you've done that thing like Dave Gorman where you've invented a new genre, uh, which is self-help comedy. So I'm delighted by that. I mean, to be compared to Dave Gorman. I mean, self-help is very, you know, it's very now. People are into it. There are magazines entirely devoted to it. And so it feels like this we're ripe for something like this. Yes, people do seem to respond very well to the show because I think we're living in an age of upward mobility psychologically and emotionally. We feel like we can do anything, we can take on the world. People stay in a job for like two years now and then they're like, I want to do a new job or I want to quit my job and write a novel. And so people are upwardly mobile within themselves, if you see what I mean. They can just sort of say, hey, I'm going to do a new thing. And I, I think this show was written by me in the way that former smokers write books about quitting smoking. No one writes a book about stopping smoking unless they have been a smoker. And similarly, I thought, oh, I'm not very sexy and boys don't fancy me. And I had this huge epiphany at the Edinburgh Festival about sexiness and what it was. And I thought, oh, I'm an idiot. All these years I've been thinking, oh, no one really fancies me. And I was confident in other ways and I was performing, but I didn't have confidence that way. And when I worked it out, I just went, I have to tell people about this. So it's sort of the comedy equivalent of a How to Quit Smoking book. One thing that people might have thought, based on the title and based on the fact that it's not just a wacky title, is that it's a bit like the book that everyone wishes Darren Brown had written, of like how to (laughs) get as many ladies to shag you as possible. A bit like a kind of Neil Strauss the game type thing. Do you get people that come assuming that it's that? I think some men come assuming it's that because I get big groups of women in the audience and then single guys sitting around who've actually come alone. When I did the Melbourne Comedy Festival, the guy at the box office said, yours is the only show for which people ring up and say, I'll have 12 tickets or I'll have one. It's like big girls' nights out going, oh, this will be fun, we'll go together. But guys don't want to say to their friends, "Um, I'd like to see a show called How to Get Almost Anyone to Want to Sleep With You because I don't know that. You know, guys are meant to know that, whereas girls are constantly talking about this as a problem. It's a problem for everyone. Do you know what? The reason I think it's a popular show is that how to get people to want to sleep with you is a daily problem that never goes away your whole life. It doesn't matter if you're in a great relationship, if you're married to the person of your dreams. You still want to know that. You still want to feel sexy when you walk down the street. You still want new people to want to sleep with you, even though you have no intention of taking that any further or even some people don't want to even flirt with people who aren't their partner. 
But we all want to feel sexy all of the time. And so what was it that happened in Edinburgh? Well, Edinburgh is a funny place. Not Edinburgh. If you're listening in Edinburgh, Edinburgh is a beautiful, charming and sophisticated place. But the festival, which is what comedians call Edinburgh, it's like when Edinburgh's over, I always feel sorry for people who live in Edinburgh. What, what do you mean when it's over? We're still here, you know. But when the festival comes to town, Edinburgh is a very strange place. And men just behave as if it's the Second World War, genuinely. They sort of just come up to you and say, hey, let's do it now, because, you know, we might not be here tomorrow. Like, it's the Blitz. And you have to say, we're at a three-week arts festival. This is not an Anderson shelter. Nobody's dying here without losing their virginity. That's not what's happening. But there is a sense of that. Like, what goes on tour stays on tour. And men get very brave, because in London... If a guy in the comedy scene comes up to you and propositions you and you turn him down, that's going to hang there for ages. But somehow in Edinburgh, it's like, well, we might not see each other again. We might live in different places. Guys might be from overseas. Or even if they are from London and you are going to see them again or from wherever you're from, there is a sort of like a drunk clause. You know, if someone hits on someone, but they're really drunk and the next day they go, oh, that's that funny last night because I was so drunk, i.e. I wouldn't do that normally. That was the beer. That wasn't me. And Edinburgh is like a three-week equivalent of that. That was Edinburgh fever. That wasn't me. So people have more permission to do that. And so I had guys coming up to me just... It was the weirdest experience. I would jump in a cab and a guy would just jump in the cab and say... I'm coming home with you. A man I had never previously laid eyes on. Or they just, a man would come up to you in the street. I was on my phone once and a man said, just said, excuse me. And I was like, yeah. And he went, I really think you're beautiful and I want to buy you a drink now. And I was just like, really? Because I'm on the phone and this is the street. It's not a nightclub. How weird. And another guy was a comedy promoter, came to see my show and he was like, I think you're really good. We'll take you for dinner. I want to talk about you doing my club. And I was like, oh, sure. And we sat down in this restaurant and he looked at me over the menus and said, I don't think we need to continue with this fiasco of dinner, do you? I think we both know what's going to happen here. And I was like, do we? But do we? And I worked out two things. One is men would always like to say those things. Edinburgh gives them permission. And the other was that... A lot of men said to me, oh, I've seen your poster. You've got a really sexy poster. And my show was about mobile phones, by the way. It was about texting addiction. It was not a sexy show. It was not especially sexy poster, but it was a confident poster. I was like leaning on a phone in a black dress and boots, you know, like smiling at the camera. So it wasn't an overtly sexual image, but because in the poster I look confident, men read that as sexy. And so men would come up and they would say, hey, I've seen your poster and it's a really sexy poster. And, and I was like, oh, well, I, I don't know about that. And I think for the rest of my life, previous to this poster scenario, a man who thought I looked confident or sexy from the other side of the room would come over and I would kill it. He would say, I think you're really sexy in some you know, more covert way. And I'd say, no, no, I'm not. And I'd sort of kill it with like what my friends called a platonic wall of, no, 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 there's nothing to be gained here. And then guys would go away and give up. But the poster had convinced them to such an extent that they would not give up and I couldn't kill it because the poster was out there doing the work. So when the guys came up, no matter what I said, they'd be like, no, I know you're sexy, I've seen the poster. So I recommend that women get a poster of themselves, like take a sexy picture of themselves and then just put posters up in their local neighbourhood. I've lost my cat. You know, a sexy picture of you with a cat. And then just loiter around in coffee shops but near your poster and guys will come up to you and go, I'm sorry, I haven't seen your cat but your poster is very sexy. Well, aside from posters, maybe if people have some issue with putting up pictures themselves what other kinds of things do you tell people to do is there stuff that just you know with a lot of these things once someone points it out 
it's really obvious. I used to be desperately shy until I was 18. And then I worked in a pub and I realised that actually people don't expect you to be hilarious and fascinating with everything that you say. And they're just kind of happy to shoot the shit. And that was what had been stopping me because up until then I'd always be like, oh, I can't say anything. And so what actually once I'd kind of been in a real life scenario that had pointed that out to me that was like you know not everyone you speak to is hilarious and fascinating all of the time and you don't mind when they're not maybe it's okay if you're not it seems so obvious but just no one had pointed it out to me and is there stuff like that in the show that you know had never occurred to you and doesn't occur to people that are there there is a lot of it is my personal epiphanies one thing I tell women is to wear a hat this is absolutely true If I walk down the street normally, nothing happens. I walk down the street in a bowler hat. At least five times a day a man will say to me, nice hat, for which I read nice tits, which is something he can't say unless I'm wearing the hat. I swear to you, girls, wear a hat to a party. You do not need a personality. Men will come up to you. Where'd you get the hat? What a lovely hat. Can I try on the hat? Can I sleep with you? It's true. It is as simple as that. And I only learnt that by sometimes I'd be asked to a party or something. I think I really don't feel like it. I'll wear a hat and that'll sort of perk me up. But it didn't need to perk me up because men would come over immediately because the hat says I do not fear attention. And I've had really cute guys in the street say to me, nice hat. And it just gives them permission to flirt. If your guy gets in a lift with a girl and he thinks she's cute, what can he say about that? He can't say, you're cute. It's embarrassing. Then you've got four floors to go. But if she's wearing a hat, he can say, cute hat. And then she can either say thanks and think, oh, that's a nice compliment and go on her way. Or she can flirt back. So he's never made a fool of himself. He's only made himself feel good and he's made the girl feel good. So wearing a hat or similar really does work. So have you had feedback from people who've been to the show? Constantly. Really? I have people email and Facebook me all the time. What kind of things? Uh, the first time I ever did it was in New York and I had a guy Facebook me saying, I just need to tell you I haven't had a girlfriend in five years. I came to see your show. I did the things and two weeks later I now have a full-time girlfriend. It's very sweet. And at the festival all the time people come up to me in the street and say... It's changed my festival. I'm sexy now and I'm constantly having people come up to me and try and chat me up. Guys and girls, which is great because the show is meant to be a comedy show. It's As long as it entertains you and makes you laugh. I don't care if it works or not, really. But it's so lovely that it does. It's really, really lovely. And I think it's because it really is from my own experience and I really do care about it. It's not just some jokes about being sexy. It's stuff that really means something to me. I think I'm almost always more interested in the audience than me so I want the audience to go away thinking I can do something new because I saw this show because that's the kind of show I love shows that make people leave thinking I can do more or I have a different perspective in the world now I'm not so interested in talking about my darker issues you do seminars for business women I do. I do seminars called How to Be a Charismatic Woman in a Man's World, which are very popular because it's about a little bit about the neuroscience of men and women and how women can be more assertive, reasons why women often want to empathise and pacify or facilitate, whereas men want to go get the target, and how 21st century leadership is much more Steve Jobsian, Google, let's all get together and collaborate and look after each other. But social networking has meant you can't just roll over people and move on. Your past comes with you everywhere you go now. So I feel like it's women's time. And yet still, while the workforce is made up of over 50% men, it really pyramids. So at the top, there's hardly any women on boards. And I'd really like to change that because I think 
the time is right for women to become 50-50. And so what kind of things do you say to people in these seminars? I show them how to be more physically commanding. So, for example, if I'm talking to you now, I can do certain things which will start to convince you I'm less confident about being here and I'm doing those things now. Now, the listeners can't see what I'm doing, but right. they'll be able to hear that I'm more nervous yeah. about being here, that I, I'm not... You know, I was really relaxed before and now I'm not. So what, what I'm doing, if, if you're listening, is, uh, is I'm flicking my eyes, I'm doing more purposeless movements and uh, I'm tucking my hair behind my ears. I'm just doing purposeless things and I'm not focusing in any one part of the room. I'm very being very promiscuous with my eyes. Um, if, on the other hand, I open my body up and I hold my head very still, and I just make direct eye contact with Marsha, I'll start to feel really powerful, and Marsha might start to feel a bit intimidated. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so I'm showing them physical stuff like that, and you can hear it in my voice. People sometimes say, oh, but what about on the phone? It works exactly the same. So I'm showing them how to physicalize differently, and I'm showing them not how to be intimidating, but what charismatic people are doing, what really charming high-status people are doing, like a Bill Clinton or an Oprah Winfrey or a Barack Obama or a Dawn French. What are those people doing? George Clooney is a favourite of mine. And how you can do that, how you can harness your charm and your empathy that women have in spades, but also raise your status so you're likeable and powerful. That's what I'm doing. And have you had any feedback from these business? Mm. Constantly, that seems to work. Every woman I've coached in the last couple of years has been promoted, which wow. has been very satisfying. And, yeah, I get lots of lovely feedback and emails from people. In I do a lot of investment banks and law firms, and I get lots of lovely emails back saying how excited everyone was and what's happening with that. That's great. You mentioned status there, mm -hmm. which is... Um, you've got a background in improv, which we'll kind of talk about how that came about, but status is a big thing in improv. Mm. Do you want to kind of explain what it is? Yeah, by status I'm not talking about what car you drive or how much money you've got in the bank. I'm talking about how dominant or submissive you are in an interaction with another human being. So I'm talking about who's in charge of the conversation. So high-status people, in general, tend to take up lots of space. They take up time... And they fill the room, they move with purpose, they're comfortable with stillness and silence. Low-status people don't take up space or time, they don't move with purpose, they find eye contact difficult, and when they talk, they like to fill in the gaps and they don't like silence. So in improv terms, you use status to create characters and to create comedy, because most comedy, like if you look at sitcoms or sketch comedy, most comedy is based on quick drops in status. So if you think of Basil Fawlty strolling around Fawlty Towers, lording it over everyone, and then by the end of the episode, he'll be in the fetal position rocking on the floor and crying. So that's the drop in status of Basil Fawlty over the episode. Um, a man slips on banana peel, the oldest joke in the world, usually a man in a business suit, slips on a banana peel, he loses his status very quickly. So that's funny. If you lose your status over three hours, Acts, that's tragedy. So it depends often on the speed, the tone, status exchanges. If uh, you have one character start high and one low and they switch, the audience will enjoy that. So a very uh, high status headmaster and a very low status child. But by the end of the scene, the child has status over the headmaster, the audience will laugh because we like to see switches in status, especially where the high status person is mean. And does that inform your stand-up? It does. I'm not so conscious of it in stand-up, but I love deconstructing. When I watch other people do stand-up, I'm very interested in their status relationship with the audience. So if I watch someone like Lucy Porter or Emo Phillips, they have so low status 
in a really charming way, so the audience love them. Emo Phillips is more low status than Lucy Porter, but they both have a completely unthreatening, almost clown-like relationship with the audience, where the audience get to be high status over them, and that's what's funny. But they both stay happy. That's very important. Clowns are people who are paid to screw up and stay happy. And that's what we love about them. If a clown gets in his little car and goes from one side of the circus ring to the other um, and does that successfully and nothing happens, we won't be pleased. Um, If he gets halfway across, breaks down, it all goes wrong for him and he gets out and he kicks the side of the car and goes, well, fucking hell, that's going to be an hour now waiting for the AA. We're not happy. We pay to see that clown screw up, all the wheels fall off his car and he stays happy while he tries to put them back on, but they keep falling off. So essentially, in comedy terms, clowns are people who are paid to screw up and stay happy. And so you get that sense off an Emo Phillips. Whereas a Rich Hall or an Al Murray are playing very high status to the audience and the audience are paying to have their status lowered by that character. People pay to sit in the front row to be insulted by Rich Hall or to be rudely deconstructed by Al Murray. And in my comedy, I like to keep my status high but raise the status of the audience to make the audience feel better about themselves. So how do you do that? And I love that. Well, if I come in very happy and very good-natured, like a Rich Hall comes in pissed off, whereas an Emo Phillips comes in happy but a little bit awkward with the audience, a little bit embarrassed with the audience... So I'll come in happy to be there, confident to be there, and then I'll start to look around the audience and talk to people in the audience and make them feel better about themselves or make jokes that are in a teasing way, but make them the hero. So, for example, if I talk to a guy who says, oh, I'm single, but I can never get girls to talk to me, and then I give him something to do and then all the girls go, yay, he's really sexy now. He looks like a hero because he started off low status and ended up high status, a little bit like Luke Skywalker. So I sometimes make people in my audience characters in the show, don't be scared, I won't talk to you unless you make eye contact with me. If you come to my show and you don't want to talk to me, don't make eye contact. I'll never, ever pick on someone who doesn't. I can sense who wants to talk to me. I love Tim Minchin because he comes out really low status and does this little bit of low status stand up. And then that gives him permission to be really high status and opinionated in his songs. I don't know if he does that intuitively or consciously, but either way, it's a genius trick. In terms of stand up, do you know of others that kind of mess around with the audience's status? You know, like you were saying, a Lucy Porter will kind of be low status, but in a happy, affectionate way, and an Al Murray will be high status. You've talked about raising the status of your audiences. Um, Dame Edna is the ultimate for for raise and lower. She says to a lady in the audience, oh, that's a lovely frock there, darling. Did you make it yourself? So it's sort of up and then quickly down. The first thing she does is compliment and then she just wipes the floor with them. But it's such a compliment to be insulted by Dame Edna that it's overall raising their status and that's why the audience let her do it because she always does it in a very good-natured, affectionate way. And it's brilliant. It all sounds like a compliment on the face of it, but it's all so incredibly insulting. And I just, I love watching that. And also you'd mentioned Russell Kane. Oh my God, Russell Kane. He's a genius. So he just won the Edinburgh Comedy Award and he is just a sort of status master, I think. He comes in high status in terms of his confidence, but his energy is always moving. Now, he manages to make that a high-status act because he takes up so much of the stage and taking up space, even though he's going quite fast, is a high-status act. Do you know he was recently filmed for TV and they couldn't use it because he was strobing, he was so fast? (laughs) Isn't that funny? He he was... They were unable to use the footage. He was strobing. That's how fast that man is. 
But he will make the audience feel so clever because the jokes that he does are so bright. I toured with him around Australia on the Melbourne Comedy Festival Roadshow. I was hosting the show and I would sit in the wings every night and just watch him. He was one of the only comics that I wanted to watch again and again and again. And they were all great, but you know, some of them I'd seen their act a couple of times and I was like, okay, I'll sit backstage and have a cup of tea. But with Russell, I always wanted to watch it because I wanted to watch his dynamic with the audience because he could make that audience almost be on that kind of roller coaster and it was partly his speed, partly the cleverness of his jokes, but he could raise and lower their status and they would love him for both. And that's unusual. The audience do not like it if I lower anyone's status accidentally. I don't mean to do it, but occasionally I have. And they just go, ooh. And I think it's funny. If Al Murray was doing that, you'd be like, that's hilarious. But if it's me, they're like, I don't think so. You are only allowed to make us feel good. If I tease someone, they're like, ooh, back off, bitch. So I can't do that, but Russell can do both. And that's why I think he's so successful, apart from obviously his cleverness. I mentioned earlier about you having an interesting past and something before you started out that maybe will have instilled in you some of the confidence to be up on stage and do, you know, improv and then eventually stand up is in your teens. Oh, yeah. You're talking about the fact that when I was a teenager, my parents thought that was an ideal time to join a mind controlling cult. And and my mind was absolutely open to it. When you're an adolescent, your mind is so bendy. And I was completely taken over for a few years by the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, in some ways, it's a sort of perfectly sweet family religion. But I I often think that the Jehovah's Witnesses can make you half who you were going to be or twice. You know, some people are really kind of broken and they've had a really tough time, you know, doing drugs or something and they no family. And it seems like a salvation. But for me, it was a complete disaster. It was a comp- it was it was such a head fuck for me. I found it very difficult because it stopped me doing everything I wanted to do. And I was just about to go to university and I had I was living in Australia, so I was around A-level time. And it just took over my life and they said I wasn't allowed to go to university and I was crying because I'd all my life wanted to go to university and I had all these plans and I did drama and I did debating, which is like an early form of stand-up for me because I did debating so I could be funny. And I did music and singing and all these things and suddenly it was all gone and I wasn't allowed to do anything except knock on doors. But they really convinced me that was the right thing to do because Armageddon was going to come. The good thing about that is that I got out of it. And if you've knocked on doors specifically and expressly with the purpose of telling other people they're wrong, literally gone up to someone's house. Like, can you imagine that? I did this every day. Hi. Yeah. I know things that you don't know about your future. And by the way, I'm 15. So um, I think you should really let me into your house so I can explain to you how you don't understand that God wants you to do certain things before he comes and destroys the earth. And if you don't do them, you're going to die in a horrible, horrible, horrible Holocaust, like an Armageddon style, terrifying situation. I will live because I'm good. But you, you're not going to. You're going to just sort of, I don't know, probably your face will fall off. It's going to be bad. So I would listen to me at 15 years old if I were you. Now, if you have done that for a serious, protracted amount of time on a daily basis, I finished school and I went straight into that. I deferred university for a year because I couldn't really get around the idea of never doing it. But they never let me go. So it was years and years and years and years of knocking full time on people's doors. And then you had to have a part time job to support yourself. And I'd learned Japanese at school. So I ended up being a Japanese interpreter to support myself part time. So I was doing stuff as a late teenager, early 20s person that for normal people, I think would seem really a weird and b scary, but just 
seriously, after you've done that, nothing, nothing can scare you. So when people in Edinburgh say, I hate flyering, going up to people and saying, you know, hey, here's my show, it's so great. I'm like, really? Try going up to them with the fucking watchtower <laughs> and saying, hey, take this. Seriously, a photo of you with my show called Jolly Jack? I mean, really, it's nothing. Give it to me. I'll take the flyer up and give it to the person. Seriously. It does make you fearless. I have to say that. If you want to be fearless, just two years with the Jehovah's Witness, it's all you need. Don't get hooked now, <laughs> people. With difficulty, I have to say, it's a very emotional process. I came over to live in London because I knew I would really never get out if I stayed in my hometown. And in a big city, you can get lost quite easily. And I stopped going. I decided I was only going to go to a meeting if I wanted to go, not because I felt guilty and I never went again, ever. And I had no friends. I was a nanny and I had absolutely no friends. And it was lonely. But then you build friends. And I went to university and I got to go to Oxford University, which I wouldn't have got to go to if that hadn't happened, if I'd gone to university the first time. So lots of great things happened. And I was still, you know, I was still young. I just, I lost a chunk of time. So I always feel like I'm a little younger than I am because I had some years in the wilderness. Pretty formative years as well. Really formative years. And I think this is the, but this is the root. We're getting to the root here, Marsha, which no one ever has got from me before. You are really, truly an interrogative journalist, even though you don't seem to be. We're getting to the root of why I'm doing a show called How to Get Almost Anyone to Want to Sleep with You. Because I don't know if you know much about the Jehovah's Witnesses, but pretty much everything's off the table. You wouldn't even be allowed to go to a nightclub, much less have sex. So during my formative years where everybody else was learning for the first time how to date and attract the opposite sex, I was... So the opposite of that. Firstly, I lived on the Gold Coast. Have you seen Muriel's Wedding? Yes. Yeah, I'm from there. I am effectively Muriel for Muriel's Wedding. It was such a terrible place for me to be in my teenage years because it was all very beautiful surfer boys who wanted very, very, very petite little Bond girls who could sit on the beach and mind the weddies when they went surfing. And I was there. I literally can remember being on, <laughs> on the beach with the complete works of Shakespeare. I did not fit in there. And then also I was a Jehovah's Witness and Jehovah's Witnesses aren't allowed to have sex. And so you're only allowed to date, which they say court, because they feel that makes it, you know, somehow more wholesome. If you're planning on marrying the person you're courting and you have to have a chaperone. So it's kind of like trying to court a man in Jane Austen times, except it's now. And boys really want girls who are going to be in subjection to them because the Jehovah's Witnesses are quite big on that. They're quite big on the girl being submissive. I mean, look at me. Was I ever going to be submissive? So boys are looking around for the most submissive girl they can find. All some on the Gold Coast, so they're looking for a very tiny blonde petite girl with no tits and no hips. So on two counts, I miss out on any boys being interested in me. So I thought I wasn't sexy. And then I went to Sydney and I was definitely sexier in Sydney. But I just had lost that confidence. So by the time I got out of the witnesses, I was behind in the game because everybody else was by this time like quite sexually literate, if you will. And I was not. And this, this is why, you know, when you turn a weakness into a strength, because I felt this was such a patch. And in other ways, I was confident. I should have been a confident girl. If I'd just been brought up in Melbourne and I hadn't been in a cult, I would have been fine. But because of all those experiences combined, I came out feeling unsexy. And so I decided to turn this 
weakness into a strength by conquering it. And really, the way to conquer it, girls, if you are feeling unsexy, get up on stage and do a show in which you claim to be able to advise others how to feel sexy. The first night, I thought, you know what? I have to deal with the fact that a guy might heckle and say, well, I wouldn't sleep with you. So I have to come up with a comeback for that and feel good about it. And it, because I could do that, and no man has ever said that, by the way, that has never been a heckle I've had. Can you say what the comeback Yes. <laughs> the comeback, should a man say, I wouldn't sleep with you, is to say, I think I've just discovered why this man is single. <laughs> Sir, what you really shouldn't do is shout out to women across rooms, I wouldn't sleep with you. It just seems a little defensive. And then if he says, well, I've got a girlfriend, I will then say, wow, she's a very lucky lady. How does she respond when you tell her how unattractive <laughs> she is? You could go down this, and he's, that man is not looking good. The yeah, audience, yeah. If, if you keep, and this is it, you've got to keep your status high if someone heckles you. People who fear heckling, because a lot of new comics are like, oh, what would I do if someone heckles? The answer is keep your status high. Even if you said nothing, you just stared at them with a still head, they would crumble and the audience would roar. That's really all you'd have to do. I saw Steve Hughes recently overcome a heckle more brilliantly than anything I'd ever seen. Some guy shouted something out and he just looked up at the guy and he said, I've done 5,000 gigs, I know how to deal with cunts. And he kept his head so still and the audience just roared. And then he said to the audience, there you are, you've done it for me. <laughs> Brilliant! <laughs> the man is a genius, Steve Hughes. So when did you start getting up on stage? When did you actually start doing it? Well, I'd done a lot of drama before The Witnesses. They made me stop doing that. And then I secretly started going and doing improv while I was a Jehovah's Witness. And with other Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, we had a little Jehovah's Witness theatre sports team. Wow. I don't know if you guys know what theatre sports is, but it's like a competitive improv format where two teams jokingly challenge each other to do games and silly things. And then you have judges who score or the audience judges, and it's, it's a lot of fun. And so I had a secret Jehovah's Witness <laughs> theatre sport team, theatre sports team. We used to go off to Brisbane from the Gold Coast, which is where I was from, and do workshops and shows. And then I started being a judge, like a... I was well known in Brisbane at Theatre Sports at that time. I was judging Theatre Sports and stuff. And I was kind of involved in the scene. And then the elders found out. The elders are like, you know, you know what they are. They're like the town elders. You know, they're the Jehovah's Witness elders. They're, basically, it's like two plumbers and an electrician coming to your house and telling you what to do. That's what the elders are. There's guys with jobs who also are nominated as the wise men of the congregation. But they are two plumbers and an electrician, like in their 30s and 40s. They will come around to your house and they'll say, you have to stop doing that, which they did. So I had to stop doing it. So I'd already got involved in improv when I was a witness. And then I came over here. And when I left the witnesses, that's, in fact, the time when I was lonely and I had no friends, I saw in Time Out that there was theatre sports in London. And I was so excited. And I went along to the show and the workshops and I got involved in that scene. And so I then started running my own improv company, The Spontaneity Shop. And when I was at university after that, I went to Oxford. I was coming back and forth doing shows in London and Oxford. I was doing improv in a very big way for a long time before I got involved in stand-up. So how did the stand-up happen then? Because they don't often cross. I mean, there's Phil Jupiter's Rufus Hound, who we've had on the podcast, but generally people tend to stick with one or the other. They do in Britain. In America, everyone does everything. Like in America, if you're a stand-up, you're also an improviser and you're a comedy actor. And you know, Here it seems to be much more siloed. I got involved in stand-up because I was doing Dream Date, which is this romantic comedy improv format where we got two audience members and we made a like a When Harry Met Sally based on their lives. And because I had to wrangle the audience and make the volunteers look good and host the show, 
I started to just love that so much and I never wanted to be in the show. I wanted to host the show. I never wanted to be one of the actors. And then I was warming up all our shows and one night the improviser said to me, hey, look, we were 20 minutes backstage before we got out tonight. And I went, yeah, I was having a really good time with the audience. And I sort of thought it's really not fair to the improvisers because what I really want to be doing is talking to the audience. I, I have no real interest in being other people. And that's when I realised it. I just thought I don't want to be pretending to be a 10-year-old boy or a dog anymore. Because someone will turn to you on stage and say, oh, here comes Madame Le Pepe, uh, the French maid now. And they look at you and you think, oh, God, I've got to be Madame Le Pepe, the French maid. And then they'll say, you know a song about bananas, don't you, Madame Le Pepe? And you think, no, I fucking don't know a song about bananas. And nor do I want to sing it on stage to these people. And when you start thinking that, you have to stop improv because you have to be so open. You have to be so yes and. You have to be so, yes, I do know a song about bananas. And when I started being unexcited about being told I had to sing a song about bananas, I stopped. I still teach improv and I love teaching it. And I wrote a book about it called The Improv Handbook with Tom Sanitsky, who's my partner and also runs the Spontaneity Shop with me. And I just love improv. I just don't want to do it anymore. I just realised I wanted to be myself with the audience. Like a hyped up version of myself was so much fun. And pretending to be someone else wasn't anymore. So I stopped. I'm going to plug the dates of the shows that you've got coming up. But one other thing that you're up to is you wrote a screenplay... A few years ago, when I got into stand-up around the same time, I decided that the other thing improv had given me, other than this fearlessness to do stand-up, was also a really good sense of story. And we'd been improvising this romantic comedy format, Dream Date, for so long that I wanted to write a romantic comedy. And I had two friends, Philippa Waller, who was also an improviser in the Spontaneity Shop, and Monica Henderson, who was a very good friend and uh, theatre director from New York, and we all wanted to write together. So we wrote this romantic comedy called The Wedding Pact, and somehow magically it sold to Fox Searchlight, but like right away, like it just happened. It just went out in Hollywood and was sent around to all the studios. The way it works there is if one studio reads it, everyone wants to read it because nobody wants to get left behind. Mainly because in Hollywood, to be honest with you, people's main job is to not lose their job, to not be fired. They wake up in the morning and think, how can I not be fired? So if Paramount have read it and liked it, then also Warner Brothers want to read it because they don't want their boss going, hey, how come they got that script? Because the only answer can be either I didn't know the agent, well, you don't know enough people, go. Or I read it and thought it wasn't any good. Well, you can't pick a good script, so go. The only answer they can give their boss is you read it and you passed on it. So it has to be read by everyone. So we were suddenly over there going around to all these big studios. Like, you know, with the gates and Singing in the Rain, where the big gates open and they go through? It's exactly like that. And we just thought it was hilarious because we just thought, how can this be happening? And we had to pitch all these ideas. And it's exactly like the Orange commercials. It's exactly like that. Like a guy sit behind a desk and you have to pitch ideas to them and then they throw throw spanners in your works and you have to keep them happy and also keep some semblance of your story. It's hilarious. What kind of things were you pitching and what kind of things were they well, saying? honestly, we were coming up with stuff in the car park because we had no idea this was going to happen. We sent it out, A, first thinking we wouldn't sell it, and then B, they said, you're selling the screenplay, it's going through, get on a plane. So we got on a plane to LA just thinking we'd just be drinking champagne and talking to the people who'd bought it. We had no idea we had to have meetings with people. When we got off the plane, our manager said, you have to go and have meetings with all these people. So we <laughs> got in a car and drove around to all these studios and they would say, so what are your next ideas? Like, could you pitch us some ideas? And we were like, sure. Oh, we can pitch ideas. Whatever. 
And we were literally coming up with things in the car park because each place is different. So you might be going somewhere that's very indie and they want little low-budget things about people sitting on park benches and chatting. Or you might be going to Warner Brothers where they want body-swapping films, you know, two fat people stuck together. So everywhere you need a new pitch. And we were pulling it out of our asses. I mean, it was hilarious. We had a great time. It was fun. And improv really came in handy, I have to say. But one pitch, we had this thing that we were, it was for a very little indie place. And we had an idea, very art house. People said the most art house place in Hollywood. And we went in and we pitched this idea about people being stuck in a log cabin in the snow. There was a plot. It wasn't just that. But the main feature of this was that people were snowed into a log cabin. And the guy turned to us and he said, uh, could it be in Brazil on the beach? I've got a lot of money down there in Brazil. It's beautiful weather down there. Beautiful. And we were like, well, no, not, not really, because the one and main thing about this is people are snowed into a log cabin in the sort of north part of America. And it was like, yeah, but Brazil is beautiful. Brazil is beautiful. You tell me a love story set down there in Brazil on the beach. I won't just develop that movie. I'll make that movie. We were like, okay, well, I guess it could be some other kind of weather. Maybe the other people got snowed in, and that's why these two people are down alone on this beach in Brazil. Great! What are they talking about? Uh, they're talking about uh, their, their partners aren't with them, and they don't know each other very well. So they're talking about man and woman, talking about flirtation, the nature of monogamy. Monogamy! I can't sell monogamy. Sex is what I can sell. You tell me a sexual awakening story set on the beach in Brazil? I won't just develop that movie. I'll make that movie. I was looking around for like a candid camera. I was going, this cannot, this guy, if smoking were allowed inside in California, this guy would have had a big cigar. He was hilarious. We walked in, he was like, so, sold a script to Searchlight, who's your agent? And we were like, um, we don't have an agent, we have a manager. You don't need a manager, you're writers. This guy's your new agent. And he pointed at this man who was also in the room. This guy's great. He's the best agent in Hollywood. He just kicked shit out of me on this deal, didn't you? Kicked shit out of me. You get yourself an agent. How much commission are you got? We, we, we don't really... You want to be giving 5%, no more. You get yourself an agent and you tell him to take 5% and go fuck himself. <laughs> so I just looked at this guy and said, hello, well, Ben, apparently you're our new agent. I'd like you to take 5% and go fuck yourself. And they just looked at each other. They took a second and they roared with laughter and was like, okay, how long's your pitch? Um, five, five minutes. Make it three. <laughs> Genuinely, that's what happened. I'm not making any of that up. It's a cliche. It's hilarious. Right. Is it at the point where like it'll definitely happen with the wedding pack? Nothing is ever at the point in which it will definitely happen until you are sitting in a movie theatre watching it on the screen. Right. Genuinely. I mean, people's projects have fallen apart. I had a friend who's, it was in the can and then there was some kind of whole tax situation and no one has ever seen that movie and he's made the movie with big wow. stars in it. So you can never say definite, but we have a couple of projects that it would be kind of, it would be very unlucky if they didn't come off, but then you can be very unlucky in the movie business. So interview me again, Marsha, in two years' time. Okay. And I'm hoping to At tell you the premiere you about, of The Wedding Pack. <laughs> I'm hoping that to see both of us in Christian Dior. Yeah. Wandering up, paparazzi there, you and me. That's how I'm seeing it. I hope that that will happen. In the meantime, your show is on at the Leicester Square Theatre. It is. This coming Wednesday the 20th, and then again on the 15th of November and the 6th of December. Any plans to tour it? Yes, there are always plans to tour it. Hopefully I will be touring sometime soon. I'm going to do the show in New York probably uh, this month as well if you're listening from New York and I'm also going to be doing a great show at the Leicester Square Theatre which also has a monthly residency called Celebrity Autobiographies in their own words which is the most hilarious show 
where you actors are literally reading from celebrity autobiographies. It's hilarious. So come to my show, How to Get Almost Anyone to Want to Sleep with You at the Leicester Square Theatre, October 20th, ideally. And also come to Celebrity Autobiographies. And what is your website where people can find out? Almostanyone.co.uk. That's almostanyone, Marsha.co.uk. Deborah Francis White, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.